We'd like to welcome you to another edition of The Jazz Show on CITR. My name's Gavin Walker, and we're here until, uh, well, sometimes after midnight. That's right. We're here basically for uh, three hours, but there's always three hours plus as well. And we, uh, of course, have an incredible array of uh, musical goodies to share with you uh, this evening, including some music by Chet Baker. Um, We also have some music by uh, Charlie Parker. We're going to get into some uh, fairly exotic um, um, Arabic-influenced jazz music, and not Yusef Latif. This is something else. And uh, we've got some very rare Thelonious Monk um, stuff to play for you, too. But our jazz feature tonight, which is always um, always kicks off the program, is a tradition on the jazz show, and it will be next week as well. Because, as we all know, it's such a cliche now. You, you, you want to just knock someone over the head that says stuff like this. So you can do it to me, too. But it's back to school, back to the grind. Yeah, you know, you know the routine. So the idea of the back-to-school is to sort of give you an entertaining um, idea of what jazz music is. And I have two albums. Uh, The first one we're going to play this evening, which is by um, Maestro Leonard Bernstein, of course, who was one of the most amazing musicians that America ever produced. He's a man of all seasons um, conductor, composer, um, uh, spokesperson for good quality music. Uh, he was truly uh, an institution, and he also had the utmost respect for jazz music. A lot of uh, musicians in the classical world uh, had a tendency and to an extent it still exists, to kind of look down on jazz musicians. Bernstein never did that. Uh, He loved the music. He was moved by the music. Some of his compositions reflect um, his deep interest uh, in jazz music as well. And, of course, he was a tremendous pianist. Um, Bernstein was uh, unbelievable. I have a lot of uh, classical albums where he's playing on it, and of course he he certainly could deliver on all counts. So he's the uh, the first jazz feature. The one next week will be uh, ac- an actual history of jazz from the early days up to a certain period of time, um, narrated by the great alto saxophonist, one of my favorite people and one of my favorite musicians, Julian Adderley, Cannonball Adderley. So that's for next week. But this week, Leonard Bernstein. And he narrates this um, album, which is called What is Jazz? And basically he's going to tell you in the first part what is jazz and what isn't jazz, what kind of ma- what makes jazz music so unique 
and uh, the reasons why and so on and so forth. He does it in a, yes, in a little bit of an academic way, but also also a very light and humorous way. And he doesn't uh, emphasize all the academic stuff so that people that have no virtually no musical training in terms of sharps and flats and notes and uh, chords and all this kind of stuff can understand what he says. And uh, he was always able to communicate this. He, he, was, uh, he did a lot of television shows in the early days when television was uh, a, a, a respectable medium um, talking about music classical music, jazz music, et cetera, et cetera, and explaining it to people that appreciated it but actually knew nothing of how it was put together. So this is what this um, What is Jazz is all about. The second half is that he takes apart, and we hear various examples by very famous musicians um, of a standard song that jazz musicians play. And in this case, it's an old standard called Sweet Sue, Sweet Sue, Just You. It's been around since the, the, uh, the 20s, but it's been played by various eras of jazz musicians. And, and we'll hear a whole bunch of variations on that. And Bernstein, of course, uh, explaining this and that and the other thing. So that's what this is all about. And that some of the musicians you're going to hear, Duke Ellington, you're going to hear Louis Armstrong. You're going to hear some great clarinet work by Buster Bailey, uh, one of the finest exponents of the clarinet. He was a man basically from the swing era. Uh, trumpeter Buck Clayton, um, tenor saxophonist Coleman Hawkins, Phil Woods, um, Tio Machiro, who, of course, went on to produce uh, Miles Davis's recordings, Bessie Smith, the, the great blues singer, and at the very end you will hear the first great quintet led by none other than Miles Davis. And, of course, in the first great quintet, Miles on trumpet, John Coltrane on tenor saxophone, Red Garland on piano, Paul Chambers on bass, and Philly Joe Jones on drums. And that's how the whole thing ends with an interpretation of that standard tune I talked about, Sweet Sue, by Miles Davis. So this is it. Basically, that's the jazz feature tonight. It's a regular thing. A lot of you have, regular listeners to this show, have heard this before. But there's always something new you can get from it. And um, that's why we like to do this every year. We have three traditions on the jazz show. Um, This album, uh, the album next week with Cannonball Adderley, and our Christmas show, where we never forget to play Scrooge (laughs) by Lord Buckley. And we never forget to play the famous Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk, Milt Jackson, Bags Groove Session, which was recorded on Christmas Eve. So um, that's why we do it on the last show before Christmas. So that's kind of a tradition of the jazz show. So we'll begin this evening with the first part of the tradition. Maestro Leonard Bernstein and What is Jazz? Now anyone hearing this music, anyone on any civilized part of this earth, east or west, pole to pole, would immediately say, that is jazz. 
We are going to try to investigate jazz, not through the usual historical approach of up the river from New Orleans, etc., which has become all too familiar, but through approaching the music itself. We are going to examine the musical innards of jazz to find out, once and for all, what it is that sets it apart from all other music. Jazz is a very big word. It covers a multitude of sounds, all the way from the earliest blues. Oh, I ain't got no mammy now. Oh, I ain't got no mammy now. To Dixieland bands. To Charleston bands. to swing bands, to boogie-woogie, to crazy bop, to cool bop, and much more. It is all jazz, and I love it all. I love it because it's an original kind of emotional expression, in that it is never wholly sad or wholly happy. Even the blues has a robustness and a hard-boiled quality that never lets it become sticky sentimental no matter how self-pitying the words are. I woke up this morning with an awful aching head. I woke up this morning with an awful aching head. My new man had left me just a room in a And on the other hand, the gayest, wildest jazz always seems to have some hint of pain in it. Listen to this trumpet and see what I mean. That is what intrigues me about jazz. It's unique, a form of expression all its own. Then I love it for its humor. It really plays with notes. We always speak of playing music. We play Brahms, we play Bach. It's a term perhaps more properly applied to tennis. But jazz is real play. It fools around with notes, so to speak. It has fun with them. It is therefore entertainment in its truest sense. But I find I have to defend jazz to those, for instance, who say it is low class. But then all music has low class origins since it comes from folk music, which is necessarily earthy. After all, Haydn minuets are only a refinement of simple, rustic German dances, and so are Beethoven's scherzos. An aria in a Verdi opera can often be traced back to the most basic Neapolitan fisherman. Besides, there has always been a certain shadow of indignity around music, particularly around the players of music. 
I suppose it is due to the fact that historically, players of music seem to lack the dignity of composers of music. This is especially true of jazz, which is almost completely a player's art, depending as it does on improvisation rather than on composition. This means that the player of jazz is himself the real composer, which gives him a creative and therefore more dignified status. Well, then there are those who argue that jazz is loud. Well, so are Sousa marches, and we don't hear complaints about them. Besides, it's not always loud. It is very often extremely delicate, in fact. Perhaps this objection stems from the irremediable situation of what is, after all, a kind of brass band playing in a room too small for it. But that is not the fault of jazz itself. However, the main argument against jazz has always been that it is not art. I think it is art and a very special one. But before we can argue about whether it is or not, we must know what it is. And so I propose to share with you some of the things I know and love about jazz. Let's take that blues we heard before and find out what it's made of. Now, what are the elements that make that jazz? Well, first of all, there is the element of melody. Western music in general is based, melodically speaking, on scales. Major, minor, and some others. But there is a special scale for jazz, which is a variation of the regular major scale you all practiced as kids. In jazz, this scale gets modified three different times. The third note gets lowered from this to this. The fifth note gets lowered from this to this. And the seventh note gets lowered from this to this. Those three changed notes are referred to as blue notes. So instead of a phrase, which ordinarily would go something like this, which is not particularly jazzy, we would get, using blue notes, this phrase, which begins to show a jazz quality. But this so-called jazz scale is used only melodically. In the harmony underneath, we still use our old unflatted notes, and that causes a dissonance to happen between the tune and the chords. Hear that dissonance? But this very dissonance has a true jazz sound. Jazz pianists are always using those two dissonant notes together, and there's a reason for it. They are really searching for a note that isn't there at all, but one which lies somewhere between the two notes, between this and this. And the note is called a quarter tone. The quarter tone comes straight from Africa, which is the cradle of jazz, and where quarter tones are everyday stuff. We can produce one on a wind instrument or a stringed instrument or with the voice, but on the piano we have to approximate it by playing together the two notes on each side of it. The real note is somewhere in that crack between them. Now let's see if I can sing you a quarter tone, if you will forgive my horrid voice. Here is an African Swahili tune I once heard. 
the last note of it will be a quarter tone. Now that last note la, sounds as if it's terribly out of tune, but actually it is a real note in another musical language. In jazz, it is right at home. Now just to show how important these so-called blue notes are to jazz, Let's hear that same blues played without them, using only the plain white notes of the major scale. There is something missing, isn't there? It just isn't jazz. But even more important than melody in jazz is the element of rhythm. Rhythm is the first thing you associate with the word jazz, after all. There are two aspects to this point, the first being the beat. The beat is what you hear when the drummer's foot is beating the bass drum, or when the bass player is plucking his bass, or even when the pianist is kicking the pedal with his foot. All this is elementary. The beat goes on from beginning to the end of any number, two or four of them to a bar, never changing in tempo or in meter. This is the heartbeat, so to speak, of jazz. But more involved and more interesting is the rhythm going on over the beat, rhythmic figures which depend on something called syncopation, a word you have certainly heard, but maybe were never quite sure of. A good way to understand syncopation might be to think of a heartbeat that goes along steadily and at a moment of shock misses a beat. It is that much of a physical reaction. Technically, syncopation means either the removal of an accent where you expect one or the placing of an accent where you least expect one. In either case, there is the element of surprise and shock. The body responds to this shock either by compensating for the missing accent or by reacting to the unexpected one. Now where do we expect accents? Always on the first beat of a bar, on the downbeat. If there are two beats in a bar, one is going to be strong and two is going to be weak, exactly as in marching. Left, right, left, right, left, right. Even if there are four beats in a bar, it is still like marching. Because although we all have only two legs, the sergeant still counts out in four. Hop, two, three, four. Hop, two, three, four. There is always that natural accent on one. Take it away, and there is a simple syncopation. One, two, three, four. <coughs> two, three, four. Two, three, four. You see that that missing accent on the first beat evokes a body response. Now, the other way to make a syncopation is exactly the reverse. Put an accent on a weak beat, the second or the fourth, where it does not belong, like this. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. This is what we all do when we listen to jazz, clapping our hands or snapping our fingers on the offbeat. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Now those are the basic facts of syncopation, and now we can understand its subtler aspects. Between one beat and another, 
there lie shorter and even weaker beats. And when these get accents, the shock is correspondingly greater. Since the weaker the beat you accentuate, the greater the surprise. Let's take eight of these fast beats in a bar. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The normal accent would fall on one and five. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Now instead, let's put a big accent on a real weak one, which is the fourth. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 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 Okay, boys, thank you. As you see, we got a pure rumba rhythm simply by accentuating the weak fourth beat. Of course, the strongest syncopation of all would obviously be obtained by doing both things at once, putting an accent on a weak beat and taking away the accent from the strong. So now we will do this double operation, put a wallop on the weak fourth beat and remove the strong fifth beat entirely. And we get one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four. begins to sound like the Congo, doesn't it? Well, now that you've heard what syncopation is like, let's see what that same blues we heard before would sound like without it. I think you'll miss that essential element, the very life of jazz. Sounds square, doesn't it? Well, that takes care of two very important elements, melody and rhythm. But jazz would not be jazz without its special tonal colors, the actual sound values you hear. These colors are many, but they mostly stem from the quality of the Negro singing voice. For instance, when Louis Armstrong plays his trumpet, he is only doing another version of his own voice. Listen to an Armstrong record like I can't give you anything but love, and compare the trumpet solo with the vocal solo. You can't miss the fact that they're by the same fellow. I can't give you anything but love, baby. That's the only thing I'm plenty of, baby. Dream my wife. Now the trumpet version. But the Negro voice has engendered other imitations, too. The saxophone is in itself a kind of imitation of it, breathy, a little hoarse, with a vibrato or tremor in it. Just to show you what a vibrato is, let's hear that sax again without one. Then there are all the different growls and rasps we get by putting mutes on the horns. Here, for example, is a trumpet with a cup mute. And now with a wah-wah mute. 
And now listen to a trombone with a plunger mute. There are other tonal colors that derive from Afro-Cuban sources, like the bongo drums, the maracas, the Cuban cowbell, and all the others. Then there are the colors that have an oriental flavor, the vibraphone, the various cymbals, and so on. All these special colorations make their contribution to the total quality of jazz. You have certainly all heard jazz tunes played straight by non-jazz orchestras and wondered what was missing. There certainly is something missing, the coloration. Let's now hear that same blues sung straight, that is, without any jazz shading at all. Not the real thing, is it? There is one more jazz element, one which may surprise some of you who think jazz is not an art. I refer to form. Did you know, for example, that the blues is a classical form? Most people use the word blues to mean any song that is blue or torchy or low down or breast beating, like Stormy Weather, for example. But Stormy Weather is not a blues and neither is Moanin' Low nor The Man I Love nor even The Birth of the Blues. They are all popular songs. The blues is basically a strict poetic form combined with music. It is based on a rhymed couplet with the first line repeated. For example, Billie Holiday sings, My man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man I've ever seen. But when she sings it, she repeats the first line. So it goes, My man don't love me, treats me awful mean. I said, my man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man that I've ever seen. That is one stanza of blues. A full blues is nothing more than a succession of such stanzas for as long as the singer wishes. Did you notice that the blues couplet is, of all things, in iambic pentameter? My man don't love me, treats me awful mean. Oh, he's the lowest man I've ever seen. This is about as classic as one can get. It means that you can take any rhymed couplet in iambic pentameter, from Shakespeare, for example, and make a perfect Macbeth blues. I will not be afraid of death and bane till Burnham Forest come to Dunsinane. It makes a lovely blues. I will not be afraid of death or bane. I said I will not be afraid of death or bane Till Burnham Forest come to Dunsinane 
Now, if you've been very attentive, you've noticed that each of those three lines got four bars apiece, making in all a 12-bar stanza. But the voice itself sang only about half of each four-bar line. I will not be afraid of death in vain, and the rest was filled up by the orchestra. This filling up is called a break. And here in the break, we have the origin of the instrument imitating the voice, the very soil in which jazz grows. Perhaps the essential sound of jazz is Louis Armstrong improvising the breaks in a blues sung by Bessie Smith. From this kind of voice imitation, all instrumental improvising has since developed. Listen to that sound. Did you notice the instrument that is accompanying the singer? It is a harmonium, that wheezy little excuse for an organ which we all associate with hymn tunes. But far from being out of place in the blues, this instrument is especially appropriate, since the chords in the blues must always be exactly the same three chords we all know from hymn tunes. These chords must always remain in a strict classical pattern, pure and simple. Try to vary them and the blues quality flies out the window. Well, there you have it. Melody, rhythm, tone color, form, harmony. In each department, there are special features that make jazz instead of just music. Let's now put them all together and hear a full-blown, all-out, happy blues. Oh, did you know that blues could be happy? Just listen. By this time, I've probably given you the impression that jazz is nothing but blues. Not at all. I've only used the blues to investigate jazz because it embodies the various elements of jazz in so clear and pure a way. But the rest of jazz is concerned with applying these same elements to something called the popular song. The popular song, too, is a form and has certain strict patterns. Popular songs are in either two-part or three-part form. By far the most numerous are in the three part. You all know this form, of course, from hearing it so much. It is simple as pie. Anyone can write one. Take Sweet Sue, for instance. All you need, really, is the first eight bars, which in the trade are called the front strain. Now 
how the song is practically written, since the whole thing will be only 32 bars long, four groups of eight bars apiece. Now the second eight is the same exactly as the first. Making 16 bars and we're already half finished. Now the next eight bars, which is called the release, or the bridge, or just simply the middle part. This must be different music, but it doesn't matter if it's very good or not, since most people don't remember it too well anyway. And then the same old front strain all over again. And it's finished. 32 bars and a classic forever. Easy, isn't it? But Sweet Sue is still not jazz. A popular song doesn't become jazz until it is improvised on. And there you have the real core of all jazz, improvisation. Remember I said that jazz was a player's art rather than a composer's? Well, this is the key to the whole problem. It is the player who, by improvising, makes jazz. He uses the popular song as a kind of dummy to hang his notes on. He dresses it up in his own way, and it comes out an original. So the pop tune, in acquiring a new dress, changes its personality completely, like many people who behave one way in blue jeans and in a wholly different way in dinner clothes. Some of you may object to this dressing up, you who say, let me hear the melody and not all this embroidery. But until you accept this principle of improvisation, you will never accept or understand jazz itself. What does improvising mean? It means that you take a tune, keep it in mind with its harmony and all, and then, as they used to say, just go to town or make it up as you go along. You go to town by adding ornaments and figurations or by making real old-fashioned variations, just as Mozart and Beethoven did. Let me show you a little of how Mozart did it, and then you may understand better how Errol Garner does it. Mozart took a well-known nursery rhyme, which he knew as A vous direz je maman, and which we know as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, or as a way of singing the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, and so on. Now, Mozart makes a series of variations on this tune. One of them begins... Then another. Another one begins. And yet another. different pieces, yet they are all in one way or another that same tune. The jazz musician does exactly the same thing. There are infinite possible versions of Sweet Sue, for example. The clarinet player might improvise one chorus of it this way.
Now, he could have done that in any number of ways, and if I asked him to do it again tomorrow morning, it would come out a whole other piece. But it would still be Sweet Sue, and it would still be jazz. In fact, let's ask him to try it again and see how different it is. Now we come to the most exciting part of jazz, for me at any rate, simultaneous improvising. This happens when two or more musicians improvise on the same tune at the same time. Neither one knows exactly what the other is going to do, but they listen to each other and pick up phrases from each other and sort of talk together. What ties them together is the chords, the harmony of Sweet Sue. Over this harmony, they play two different melodic lines at the same time, which in musical terms makes a kind of accidental counterpoint. This is the germ of what is called the jam session. Now the trumpet is going to join with the clarinet in a double improvisation on Sweet Sue and see if you can distinguish the two melodic lines. The business of improvising together gave rise to the style called Dixieland, which is constantly having a big revival. One of the most exhilarating sounds in all music is that of a Dixieland band blaring out its final chorus, all stops out, with everyone improvising together. Here is that Dixieland chorus of Sweet Sue. see how exciting this can be. But jazz is not all improvisation, not by a long shot. Much of it gets written down, and it is then called an arrangement. The great days of arrangements were the 30s, when big startling swing arrangements were showing off the virtuosity of the great bands like Casaloma, Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, the Dorsey Brothers, and so on. Now jazz is hard to write down. There is no way of notating exactly those quarter tones we talked about, nor the various smears and growls and subtle intonations. Even the rhythms can only be approximated in notation, so that much of the jazz quality is left to the instincts of the player who is reading the music. Still, it does work, because the instincts of those players are so deep and genuine. Let's listen to a good solid swing arrangement of a chorus of Sweet Sue, as we might have heard it back in 1938.
Now remember, this arrangement was for dancing. In 1938, we were all dancing, and that brings up the most important point of all. Nobody seems to dance to jazz very much anymore, except for mambo lovers, and they are limited to those who are athletic enough to do it. What has happened to dancing? We used to have a new dance practically every month. The Lindy Hop, the Shag, the Peabody, the Big Apple, Boogie, Susie Q. Now we have only dances you have to take lessons to do. What does this mean? Simply that the emphasis is on listening these days instead of on singing and dancing. This change had to happen. For one thing, the tremendous development of the recording industry has taught us to listen in a way we never did before. But even more important, with the advent of more complicated jazz like swing and boogie-woogie and bop, our interest has shifted to the music itself and to the virtuosity of its performance. That is, we are interested in what notes are being played, how well, how fast, and with what originality. You can't listen to bop intelligently and dance too, murmuring sweet nothings into your partner's ear. You have to listen as hard as you can to hear what's happening. So in a way, jazz has begun to be a kind of chamber music, an advanced, sophisticated art mainly for listening, full of influences of Bartok and Stravinsky, and very, very serious. Let's listen for a moment to this kind of arrangement of our old friend Sweet Sue. Now whether you call that weird piece cool or crazy or futuristic or modernistic or whatever, the fact is that it is bordering on serious concert music. The arrangement begins to be a composition. Take away the beat, and you might not even know it's jazz at all. In fact, let's hear a little of it without the beat and see. What we are hearing might perfectly well be a concert piece. Why is it jazz? Because it is played by jazz men on jazz instruments, and because it has its roots in the soil of jazz and not of Bach. I think the key word to all this is the word cool. It means what it implies. Jazz used to advertise itself as hot. Now the heat is off. The jazz player has become a highly serious person. He may even be an intellectual. He tends to wear Ivy League clothes, have a crew cut, or wear horn-rimmed glasses. He may have studied music at a conservatory or a university. This was unthinkable in the old days. Our new jazz man plays more quietly with greater concentration on musical values, on tone quality, technique. He knows Bartok and Stravinsky, and his music shows it. He tends to avoid big, flashy endings, the music just stops when it is over. As he has become cool, so have his listeners. They don't dance. They listen respectfully as if to chamber music and applaud politely at the end. At jazz nightclubs all over the world, 
you find audiences who do not necessarily have a drink in their hands and who do not beat out the rhythm and carry on as we did when I was a boy. It is all rather cool and surprisingly controlled, considering that jazz is essentially an emotional experience. Where does this lead us in our investigation? To some pretty startling conclusions. There are those who conclude from all this that here in the new jazz is the real beginning of serious American music, that at last the American composer has his own expression. Of course, when they say this, they are intimating that all American symphonic works up to now are nothing but personalized imitations of the European symphonic tradition from Mozart to Mahler. Sometimes, I must say, I think they have a point. At any rate, we can be sure of one thing, that the line between serious music and jazz grows less and less clear. We have serious composers writing in the jazz idiom, and we have jazz musicians becoming serious composers. Perhaps we've stumbled on a theory. But theory or no theory, jazz goes on, finding new paths, sometimes reviving old styles, but in either case, looking for freshness. In any art that is really vital and searching, splits are bound to develop, arguments arise, and factions form. Just as in painting, the non-objectivists are at sword's point with the representationalists, and in poetry, the imagists declaim against the surrealists, so in jazz music, we have a major battle between the traditionalists and the progressives. These latter are the ones who are trying hardest to get away from the patterns of half a century, experimenting with new sonorities, using note relationships that are not common to the old jazz, and in general, trying to keep jazz alive and interesting by broadening its scope. Let us see if we can feel the essential difference between the two schools by listening to a progressive jam session on you guessed it, Sweet Sue. This style will embody all the elements we have discussed as distinguishing jazz from all other music, but will use them in a new and different way.
Well, we've heard jazz as it comes from the past, and we've had a sample of what might turn out to be the future of jazz. What we're hearing now is jazz in the present tense, still a fresh and vital art with a solid past and an exciting future. Our jazz feature this evening was a performance by Leonard Bernstein, who did the narration, played, and explained in his own inimitable fashion what jazz is and what jazz ain't. And, of course, we heard all kinds of uh, very well-known musicians uh, that performed on that record. The last uh, bit, of course, was Miles Davis and the first great quintet with John Coltrane, Red Garland, Paul Chambers, and Philly Joe Jones. And uh, their sort of abstract version of uh, the tune that uh, Bernstein went into lengthy discussion about the standard tune called Sweet Sue. So I hope you enjoyed that. That was the first... Um, edition, or the first part one of our back-to-school um, sort of uh, education with uh, entertainment um, jazz feature that we do every year uh, on The Jazz Show. So I certainly hope that even if you have heard this before, that you got a little bit of new information out of it. And if you've never heard it before, well, there you go. This is all new, and of course, uh, Leonard Bernstein was one of the great communicators in music, period, and one of the great American institutions, Leonard Bernstein. That album was called What is Jazz, and it was originally issued in the mid-50s on Columbia Records. Um, I always have to laugh at some of the um, a little bit dated references in there, some of the dances, of course, that people have never heard of unless, you know, they're your grandma. But uh, um, also the the idea that jazz musicians can be intellectual and wear horn-rimmed glasses, well, you know, that's that's kind of funny too. But I think Bernstein was just kind of playing with with different ideas and, uh, of course, referring to... uh, um, energetic modern jazz is crazy bop. Well, you know, I suppose that's okay too. But uh, a, a few of those references are a little bit funny, but that's okay. That's just all part of the recording. And I still think it, it um, packs a certain educational punch and uh, is well worth listening to. And, of course, some of the artists you heard on it, Louis Armstrong, the clarinet, was uh, done by Buster Bailey. We heard Coleman Hawkins. We heard Phil Woods, Buck Clayton, Tio Machero, Bessie Smith, Duke Ellington, um, so many uh, so many names. Now, before we go into our second uh, part, I promised some Chet Baker. I'd like to play you one piece. Um, we heard uh, uh, Maestro Bernstein talk about... Um, Sweet Sue, the song Sweet Sue. And we heard different um, truncated variations of it, except for the Miles Davis version, which is kind of an abstract arrangement of the tune. Uh, We did hear different variations and different ways of playing it um, over the years in, in, in jazz music. So I'd like to actually play you a version of that tune 
um, done by some really fine modern jazz musicians. And um, we hear the tune played literally and then improvised on, and these guys really cook. This was all recorded in 1958 in Los Angeles, uh, and it's a quartet led by the great, and I still feel terribly underrated pianist, Hampton Hawes. And Hampton is on piano, and the people he chose on this recording, which was issued on contemporary records, the recording's called Four, and it shows them all on a golf course, <laughs> a typical California uh, cover um, with, with them all playing golf. But anyway, it's a great cover. But the album is great, too, and uh, it's one of Hampton Hawes' finest. So it's Hampton Hawes on piano, Barney Kessel on guitar, the great Red Mitchell on bass, and Shelley Mann on drums. And here is their really hip little version of Sweet Sue to kind of wrap things up. Here we go.
There you go. Hampton Haas from a wonderful album entitled Four, which came out on uh, Contemporary Records. And that was uh, Hampton's version of uh, a tune, of course, that uh, Leonard Bernstein went on a lengthy discussion about taking it apart and blah, 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 and stuff like that. And we heard just a straight-ahead version of the tune with Hampton Hawes on piano, of course, Barney Kessel on guitar, Red Mitchell on bass, and Shelly Mann on drums, all recorded in Los Angeles in uh, March of 1958. All right. Uh, We'd like to remind you, of course, that you are listening to CITR 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca, right out here from the University of British Columbia on unceded Musqueam territory. My name is Gavin Walker, and we're right in the middle of the jazz show. And we have a couple of announcements, and we'll be right back with... One of the great voices, one of the great voices, period, and also one of the great trumpet players, Chet Baker. There's still time to apply to Shindig 2015. Compete in CITR's very own Battle of the Bands. Be a part of Shindig history and join past contestants like Japan Droids, Bond of Tigers, The Pack AD, Mystery Machine, and The Organ. Win studio time and track mastering. Showcases at North by Northeast, Canadian Music Week, and Music Waste, and much more. All genres welcome. All we need is a three-song demo and your contact info. Please email all submissions to shindig.submissions at gmail.com by Sunday, September 28th. Be a part of Shindig 31. This September 17th to 20th, Rifflandia Festival will transform Victoria, B.C., featuring a diverse lineup of artists across numerous stages and pop-up venues, all within walking distance in the city's beautiful and historic downtown core. Dancing naked around a fire Leaving trouble behind Swimming in the water this year's acts include Chromio, Julian Casablanca's Plus the Voids, Chiesa, Arkelis, and more. Visit Rifflandia.com for full details. Sometimes you get tied down. You're listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkaminam-speaking Musqueam people. Chet Baker, of course, is uh, such a legendary figure. He passed away in 1988. Um, He fell out of a hotel room building in Amsterdam. Well, you see, the the mystery really still hasn't been solved. Did he commit suicide? Was it accidental that he just slipped and fell? Or did someone push him? We all know that Chet Baker was a a committed uh, drug addict, and he did, over the years, get into trouble with his um, suppliers because uh, Chet had a tendency sometimes to withhold payment. And you don't withhold monetary payment to these guys um, because, in the end, you're going to get hurt, and Chet did at one time in San Francisco. As a matter of fact, he, he had his uh, whole um, 
he had his teeth knocked out and everything else. And uh, uh, yeah, anyway, and various incidents like that in his rather troubled life. There's a movie out which is uh, which debuted at the uh, Toronto. Um, International Film Festival. We hope to see it here very soon. Um, I haven't read any reviews on the movie yet. Uh, I have several friends of mine that have seen the movie, but I've yet to get in any information. But it stars Ethan Hawke as Chet Baker, and it's kind of a, a biopic. And it might be a very, very interesting movie. There's always uh, kind of uh, um, doubts about jazz movies, especially from people like myself who are involved with the music because the, the movie industry has never really treated jazz in a realistic um, kind of fashion. I have my favorite jazz movies, and uh, um, there's a lot of them that were out there that uh, I didn't particularly enjoy. And, and so I, I hope that the Chet Baker... Uh, movie is uh, a somehow realistic portrait of this incredibly talented man. We're going to hear some music. Actually, it's um, Chet is a sideman on the date. The leader of the date is bassist Charlie Hayden, the late Charlie Hayden. And Chet, of course, is here. But it's basically, it's, it really is a Chet Baker date, even though he isn't billed as the leader. Uh, and it was recorded in Italy. And um, it features uh, Chet on trumpet, and, and we're going to hear him sing as well. And uh, Enrico um, Pieronuzzi on piano, a really, really fine pianist. And, of course, the great Billy Higgins on drums, and, of course, Charlie Hayden on bass. So we're going to hear uh, three tunes from this album. Um, I really... It was done in November of 1987, about six months before Chet's untimely demise. And um, Chet just sounds as beautiful as always on this. The first tune we're going to hear is a Charlie Parker original called Visa that uh, Bird wrote back in 1949 uh, in honor of traveling to Europe. Uh, for the first time, and he had to get a you know visa, passport, all this kind of stuff. And he wrote that tune called Visa. The second tune, of course, is a tune that is almost um, de rigueur for every Chet Baker performance. He has to do this tune. And, of course, the tune is Rogers and Hart's My Funny Valentine. We hear them both sing and play on that tune. And tune number three is a very, very beautiful composition by Charlie Hayden. Um, I, I've always loved this tune. It really touches my heart. It's a tune called Silence. So here then is the magnificent Chet Baker, Charlie Hayden, Enrico Peranuzzi, and Billy Higgins. Visa.
Funny Valentine, sweet comic Valentine, you make me smile with my heart. Your looks are laughable, unphotographable, yet you're my favorite work of art. Is your figure less than Greek?
We heard three pieces from this uh, marvelous album called Silence, and the actual leader is the bassist, the late and wonderful Charlie Hayden. And uh, But the real star of the date is the one and only Chet Baker, who was heard on trumpet and his vocal as well. Uh, with Enrico Pieranuzzi on piano and the great Billy Higgins on drums. And we heard three tunes. And uh, we opened with Charlie Parker's uh, original called Visa. It kicked things off, and then we went into, uh, of course, a tune that Chet always has to do. And, of course, it was Rogers and Hart's My Funny Valentine, and we heard a, a vocal chorus by Chet as well. And the final tune is one of... Um, it's just a beautiful piece. I've always been very moved by this piece. It was written by Charlie Hayden. I've heard different versions of this um, this this piece, and I think it it's a um, a good way to sort of end the Chet Baker state uh, uh, segment because it's it it's almost like a a requiem for for Chet, and um, the 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 composition is Charlie Hayden's, and it's called simply. Silence, and it's the title track from this uh, European issue, um, this wonderful album. So there you go. Coming up, um, I hope you enjoyed the, uh, the Chet Baker sequence. One of the greatest piano players uh, in the world passed away not too long ago, and I'm talking about England's John Taylor. We're going to hear some solo piano, and John Taylor... Uh, a lot of people are not aware of, of the, the incredible talent um, of, of John Taylor. His beautiful touch, um, he just, um, everything, everything he does is just uh, um, uh, so wonderfully complete. And um, his, his, his tone on the piano and, and, and so on. This was recorded in Germany in, uh, in 1990. And... Uh, uh, I love John Taylor's piano playing, always have, and we're going to hear a couple of pieces um, uh, featuring John on, on solo piano. He did make one appearance here in Vancouver several years ago at the Vancouver East Cultural Center as part of another band, and we heard this uh, marvelous musician. And I had the pleasure um, back in the early days, uh, our early uh, 80s, at the Edmonton Jazz Festival, um, and when I was with the CBC of interviewing John as well, he was part of a group called uh, Azimuth with Kenny Wheeler and his then-wife uh, vocalist Norma Winstone. And um, uh, John was uh, very affable and funny and uh, very, very British sense of humor, but what a magnificent musician. And we're going to hear a couple of pieces. The first piece is written by Alex North. And... It's such a beautiful, uh, romantic uh, composition. And interestingly enough, um, you know, movie music is, is, is very important in, 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 in most movies. Most movies have music. And, but it's usually negligible. People forget the music. Um, it's there. It's gone. It's part of the scenario. It's part of the action scene. It's part of the love scene. It's part of this and that and the other thing. Back in the day, there was some great movie um, uh, music made, compositions that you remembered, and you took them away from the movie, and they became uh, beautiful pieces just by themselves away from the movie. This first piece we're going to hear 
I've always loved this piece, and it's the love theme from the um, Roman, you know, uh, sandals, <laughs> sandal-type movie, famous movie. Uh, it was an epic movie uh, called Spartacus, and this is the love theme from Spartacus. And then the, uh, the next tune we're going to hear is um, one dedicated to one of John Taylor's idols, uh, Bill Evans, and it's called Sweet for Bill in Hamburg because this was, um, these solo piano pieces were recorded at, a, <laughs> interestingly enough, at um, uh, uh, an auditorium in Hamburg called Funkhaus. Uh, it's the Funkhaus Hamburg, and it was recorded December 6, 1990. So here then is the wonderful um, piano stylings of the one and only John Taylor. And we begin with the love theme from Spartacus.
We just heard a lengthy piece of music called Sweet for Bill, referring to Bill Evans. Sweet for Bill in Hamburg, and it was a long, um, semi-planned, but uh, mostly improvised piece of music that featured pianist, the late pianist John Taylor. And before that, he performed the beautiful Alex North piece uh, from the movie, the epic uh, movie of many years ago called Spartacus. And um, John Taylor performed the uh, love theme from Spartacus. So we heard these two uh, pieces in this uh, uh, interlude on our show by the late pianist John Taylor. And, of course, his, his beautiful touch, his imagination, and uh, everything. He was just a, a master musician and a wonderful uh, exponent of um, just gorgeous music, period. This was all recorded in Hamburg in Germany at a large hall called the Funkhaus. <laughs> That's great. And... Um, the music was definitely not funky, but uh, that's the name of the place. I like it. And it was recorded in December of 1990. And, of course, um, well recorded and on a very, very good concert grant as well uh, because John Taylor deserves the best. And he played his best right there, some solo piano work. We hope you enjoyed that. You are listening to The Jazz Show on CITR-FM 101.9 or on your trusty computer, which is www.citr.ca. And we're out here at the University of British Columbia on unceded Musqueam territory. My name's Gavin Walker, and uh, we have some more music coming up. We're going to get back to some uh, hard-driving um, swinging jazz with uh, one of the greatest saxophone players that ever lived, one of my idols, really, Sonny Stitt. And we're going to hear him on alto and tenor saxophone, one of his uh, finest recordings. But um, I would like to mention, just before we get into um, Mr. Stitt's music, just a, a couple of things. One of the uh, great websites, of course, is administered by my good friend Brian Nation, and it's vancouverjazz.com. And, of course, there's all kinds of links on there. The only thing that is not on there now is um, the gig calendar. Uh, Brian is uh, still recovering from a, a pretty serious illness, and uh, he hasn't got that active yet on, the, uh, on his website. But uh, you can go somewhere else for that and get a calendar of... Uh, uh, all the events that are uh, happening around in and around Vancouver. And, of course, uh, there's, you know, things coming up. I would like to mention this Friday um, at the uh, Media Club, which is down at 695 Camby Street. And this is a special mention because uh, she does have a lot of fans that are um, jazz people. And it's essentially a, a blues uh, performance, but she always carries great musicians with her, and I'm talking about Maria Maldar, and she's going to be there with her Bluesiana show, and that's going to be at the Media Club, 695 Camby Street, and tickets um, you can uh, are available at uh, High Tide Concerts, which is uh, simplefix.ca. That's how you can get tickets for that show. So, um, and uh, she will be performing there this Friday, September 18th, 
Maria Moldara and her Louisiana. So that's one, uh, she's always a, a really classy performer. And uh, she's uh, been around the block a few times and really knows, got some great songs. Maybe she'll sing Midnight on the Oasis. I think she has to do that anyway, just about every show. Once you get a hit, you know, you're really, you're really stuck doing that. But uh, um, that's cool. Most performers enjoy doing it because they always kind of update it. If they ever have hits, they, they, they change it slightly and, and refresh it. And um, that's good for the audience and good for them as well. So, uh, so do check her out. And uh, another great website, of course, is the website of the Coastal Jazz and Blues Society. And there's all kinds of uh, uh, links on there as well as a gig calendar. And that's coastaljazz.ca. They keep that website uh, up to date. And, of course, there's all sorts of things um, in the offing and, and coming. All you have to do is go on the website and you can see it all. Um, you know where to purchase tickets for different events and all that, all that kind of stuff. Very informative website. That's coastaljazz.ca. And finally, I always mention my friend Ken Speller. Ken Speller is a very fine musician. He teaches uh, as well. And he uh, has a business called uh, Music at Home, where he'll come to your home and actually instruct you on how to play the clarinet, the flute, the saxophone, whichever instrument you choose. And he's an excellent teacher. He taught in Japan uh, for about 10 years, and um, he's, he's very accomplished that way and a very, very good teacher. And his uh, costs are very reasonable, too. So if you have somebody uh, in your household that wants to... Uh, uh, take up an instrument or develop uh, further skills on an, uh, um, a reed instrument that they're already playing. Ken Speller's the guy to talk to. Also, he is a repairman, and this is something he does extremely well. A man of many talents. He uh, repairs woodwind instruments, clarinets, flutes, saxophones, and he will uh, tweak them, um, get them into shape, or he will give you a complete overhaul, that kind of thing, which is a, a pretty serious business. But he keeps his prices down once again because his workshop is located right in his home. And so he doesn't have these this kind of overhead costs or anything like that. So that's, uh, that's excellent. So you get a good job done, and you don't have to pay an arm and a leg for that. And it's always good to keep reed instruments in top shape. There are lots of moving parts on them. And uh, they do break down and get out of adjustment and that kind of thing. So if you want to sound your best, um, he's the man to uh, get your instrument in shape. So he's located at the uh, in North Vancouver, uh, the 13th and Lonsdale area. Uh, he has a telephone, which is uh, 778-800-1933. That's 778-800-1933. Or you can reach him via email, kspeller, K-S-P-E-L-L-E-R, underscore 14, at yahoo.ca. kspeller, underscore 14, at yahoo.ca. Sonny Stitt. I think Sonny Stitt is still shamefully underrated as a saxophonist by a lot of people. He made a lot of records in his lifetime. He recorded quite casually, uh, although he recorded albums with orchestra, strings, and that sort of thing. Basically, uh, he just liked to get into the studio with a, a good rhythm section and play, pick out a whole bunch of tunes and just, and just play them. Um, and so he made a lot of uh, quartet dates, and they're all good. 
Um, some dates uh, seem more casual than others with, with Sonny Stitt, but the playing level was always at the highest. Sonny Stitt was just a master of music and a master of both the alto and tenor saxophones. He, he had a, a distinct identity on both of those instruments as well. So we're going to hear him on tenor saxophone on the first tune with a wonderful rhythm section, Barry Harris on piano, Sam Jones on bass, and uh, I believe um, on this album it's um, Alan Dawson on drums, the great uh, drummer from uh, Boston who was actually Tony Williams' drum teacher, Alan Dawson. And uh, the first tune we're going to hear is attributed to Miles Davis. He didn't actually write it. It was written by Eddie Cleanhead Vincent, who was a blues um, a blues singer, alto saxophonist. He wrote a lot of tunes. Miles appropriated the tune because he recorded a definitive version of it and put his name on it, and it stuck. The tune is called Tune Up, and it's uh, we're going to kick off the Sonny Stitt set with that, uh, and Sonny plays tenor. Then Sonny turns his attention to one of the great ballads from the Great American Songbook, one of my all-time favorites, Vernon Duke's I Can't Get Started With You, and Sonny delivers that on alto saxophone. Uh, then we move to a blues written by Sonny Stitt, dedicated to two of his idols, Lester Young and Charlie Parker, and it's called Blues for Prez and Bird. So here then, Sonny Stitt, alto and tenor saxophones, Barry Harris on piano, Sam Jones on bass, and Alan Dawson on drums. And we begin with tune-up. Thank you. 
Thank you. 
Thelonious Monk and a very special edition of his band uh, because Steve Lacey was also in the in the band on soprano saxophone, Charlie Rouse on tenor saxophone, John Orr on bass, and Roy Haynes on drums, and of course Mr. Monk at the piano. We heard two tunes recorded at the uh, Quaker City Jazz Festival, August 27, 1960, in Philadelphia. And uh, the tune, Evidence, was the first tune. And the second tune, of course, was Monk's Blues, Straight No Chaser. And as I mentioned before, um, this band with uh, Steve Lacey on soprano never uh, made a, a formal recording. And this is, uh, this is from, a, I assume, a broadcast recording. And they, they cleaned up the tape as much as possible. And uh, the sound is pretty good, considering... Um, uh, the first time I heard these recordings on another label, uh, they sounded pretty bad. And um, uh, the uh, whoever processed the uh, uh, the uh, the tapes did a good job at to, you know cleaning up a lot of the stuff. And there you go, a very special edition of Thelonious Monk's group, the Thelonious Monk Quintet. All right, we're gonna. Um, actually turn our attention to uh, some interesting, uh, kind of exotic uh, music with uh, bassist Ahmed Abdul Malik. And um, this is from one of his albums uh, that he made for New Jazz Records. And Ahmed Abdul Malik was a uh, bassist who uh, had worked with all kinds of people, including uh, he put in a lot of time with Thelonious Monk as well. And uh, he is from a Sudanese uh, family. His ancestry was uh, Sudan. So he, uh, because of that culture, he was very interested in uh, sort of African-Arab culture and uh, interested in the music, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and also developed talents on the oud, O-U-D, which is a, a stringed um, uh, Middle Eastern instrument, plus the bass, of course. And uh, um, he was featured on, on these compositions that he wrote. The band includes uh, Richard Williams on trumpet, uh, Bilal Abdurrahman on uh, clarinet and uh, Darabika, uh, Robert Alain on flute, Edwin Steele on alto saxophone, Taft Chandler on tenor saxophone, Callow Scott on cello, uh, Mr. Malik on uh, um, bass and oud, Rudy Collins on drums, and Montego Joe on um, conga drums, uh, and Chief Bay on uh, African drums. So we're going to hear three tunes from this album. It's called The Sounds of Africa, and it came out on the new jazz label. Three compositions by uh, Ahmed Abdul Malik. And uh, the first one is called uh, Wakida Hena. The second tune, a little more simpler title, The African Bossa Nova. There you go. And the final tune is called Nadusilma. Nadusilma. So three tunes featuring the music, uh, which is sort of a combination of uh, Arabic and, 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 and African music, etc., etc. Uh, the music of Ahmed Abdul Malik. Thank you. 
We just heard uh, a sample of uh, an album called The Sounds of Africa, and that was led by bassist and uh, master of the oud, Ahmed Abdul Malik. 
And um, he was a bassist that uh, worked with various uh, musicians over the years, but uh, most famously with Thelonious Monk, fine bass player. And um, the music is kind of reflective of his American and uh, Sudanese and Arabic kind of heritage all mixed up into one. And uh, he did a series of albums um, back before uh, world music was even called world music. And um, these uh, these albums were sort of, well, accepted, um, but not they weren't really considered jazz albums, but they certainly, you know, on listening today, they they certainly are. It's just jazz with a, a variation, and, and it shows that uh, jazz music can absorb a lot of musics and, and still uh, retain its uh, spontaneity and, uh, and fun and uh, all that, creativity, all that kind of stuff. So uh, the people involved here, Richard Williams on trumpet, uh, Bilal Abdur. Rahman on uh, clarinet and uh, Darabika, which is a kind of a uh, stringed instrument. Uh, 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 Rupert Allain on flute. Edwin Steele on alto saxophone. Taft Chandler on tenor saxophone. Callow Scott on cello. And uh, Ahmed Abdul Malik, of course, on bass and uh, oud. Rudy Collins on drums. Montego Joe on conga drums. And Chief Bay on African drums. So we heard three tunes. We heard Wakita Henna, uh, com- all composed by Abdul Malik, and uh, and then the uh, the very American-sounding African bossa nova, which was kind of a combination of bossa nova, uh, blues, and um, African feel as well. And the final tune was a little more exotic. It was called Nadu Silma. And as I said, that's from this uh, new jazz album called The Sounds of Africa. All right. You are, of course, listening to The Jazz Show on CITR-FM 101.9 or on your computer, www.citr.ca. My name's Gavin Walker, and uh, we hope you're enjoying the program. We have a few uh, messages for you, and uh, we'll be right back with, uh, with some more music. Art students, assemble. Looking for a super way to meet friends and your new faculty? Want to get familiar with UBC's campus in a heroic way? Ready to have fun? Startup is the answer to all your questions. Come join us on September 19th for an action-packed day. Are you or someone you know entering the UBC Faculty of Science this fall? The Science Undergraduate Society is hosting Science RxN, a fun-filled day of activities and great people. This is a great opportunity to learn about your campus and what it offers you. This event is completely optional, but we have limited spots to sign up as soon as you can. Invite your friends for the chance to win some awesome prizes. Check out our website at www.susrxnubc.com. RxN begins this September 19th. Registration open now.
Well, we always have a look at the weather sometime during the show. This time it's uh, a little later than usual, but uh, the weather uh, tonight is partly cloudy. There's a 40% chance of a shower out there with a low of 10. Uh, Tomorrow is going to be mainly cloudy with a 40% chance of a shower once again. A low of 10, high of 17. Then Wednesday is cloudy with a 60% chance of shower, low of 11, high of 15. Uh, Thursday, even more, uh, same but a 70% chance of a shower, low of 11, high of 17. Friday is the same with low of 13, highs of 17. And Saturday, they're calling for periods of rain, uh, that old familiar one with a low of 12 and a high of 18. So a little bit of a downturn of the weather this week, but... uh, we hope that uh, maybe some really nice weather will come back. It usually does this time of year, but again, uh, the weather is kind of changing as we all can feel it in the air, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> there you go. We're uh, going to do a couple of tunes. I think this is going to be the uh, the closing set of the show this evening uh, by the great uh, saxophonist Oliver Nelson and composer. This is from a a wonderful album that uh, Oliver did with uh, trumpeter Joe Newman, who was uh, actually from the Basie Band. And Joe was a great, distinctive, and very declarative uh, trumpeter. And a a wonderful rhythm section. Hank Jones on piano, George DeVivier on bass, Charlie Persip on drums, and Ray Barretto on conga drums. We're going to hear two tunes Uh, The first one is the title track from this album. It's a Duke Ellington tune called Main Stem. And the second tune uh, is dedicated to um, Oliver Nelson's favorite scotch, and it's entitled J&B. So here then is music of tenor saxophonist, composer Oliver Nelson.
Music by the great Oliver Nelson, who um, played both the uh, tenor saxophone and the alto saxophone uh, on those tunes. Um, we also heard his uh, partner uh, on the front line, the great late Joe Newman on trumpet, Hank Jones on piano, George DeVivier on bass, Charlie Persip on drums, and Ray Barretto on conga drums. And the first tune was Ellington's great tune called uh, Main Stem. And the second tune was uh, written by Oliver Nelson, dedicated to his favorite scotch called J&B. And uh, he switched over to uh, alto saxophone for the second tune. Yeah, that's a great album. It was done in 1961 for uh, New Jazz Records. And uh, Oliver Nelson and Joe Newman made a great front line. Wrapping up our show this evening... We hope that you uh, enjoyed the music and will join us again next week on The Jazz Show. We start at 9 p.m. on Monday evenings. Our jazz feature next week is part two of our back-to-school idea, the um, sort of education with entertainment idea. And this is going to be um, a history of jazz narrated by the late, great, uh, Julian Cannonball Adderley, one of the major voices of the alto saxophone. And this is kind of a history of, uh, a short history of jazz um, up to the time it was recorded. Um, and it's still very interesting and, and, uh, and very vital. And Cannonball is such a, a relaxed and uh, um, erudite raconteur. And uh, I wish he, he would have made more records um, of this variety would have been great. But uh, we have this one. That's what we're going to hear next week. It's a, it's a tradition on the jazz show um, every September. We do these uh, two albums. Tonight we had Leonard Bernstein doing What is Jazz. Next week, Julian Cannonball Adderley and the short history of jazz music. So uh, we hope that you can be with us. On behalf of myself, Gavin Walker, this has been The Jazz Show. And, of course, we're broadcasting right out here at UBC on unceded Musqueam territory. We're on FM 101.9. We're also on the computer, www.citr.ca. We'll see you in seven days' time. Take care, and bye-bye for now.